Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 20. I am very happy that you are here and today's episode is all about happiness. Even though every episode is basically about happiness on Adventures in Happiness podcast. But uh, in this episode in particular, we are talking about a lot of research studies around happiness. What does it really take for us to feel better about our lives? Because many of us are running this old model. We think that If we just work harder and we become more successful, then we will be happier. We tend to put a lot of conditions around our happiness. And our guest today, Neil Pasricha, is going to show you a whole new way to look at happiness. And what's really awesome about Neil is that he talks a lot about research studies. So this isn't just some cute, you know, they're not just cute ideas, they are things that have been researched that show that these small things really make a difference in people's happiness. So let me tell you a little bit about Neil. He has uh, one of his books is The Book of Awesome. It sold over one million copies. And he has a great TED Talk that I watched over the weekend. I really recommend it. It's had 2.5 million views. And he has a new book. It's coming out on March 8th. So circle out in your calendar, March 8th. But you don't even have to wait because you can pre-order the book now. And it is called The Happiness Equation. So today in our conversation, we're going to be talking about this happiness equation. I've never met Neil in person, but he's one of those people that you connect with. And in the first five minutes, he's making he makes you happy and he makes you feel great. And I think that you're going to find the same. I am such a fan of his uh, after doing this show and after reading his book. So I hope that you enjoy this as much as as I enjoyed doing the interview. This whole show is an act of love. So share it with the people that you love. And of course, I love to hear from you. So always feel free to reach out and let me know your thoughts about the show. Enjoy. So nice to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. Uh, are you, so do you live in Canada still? Yes, I do. Oh, nice. Yep. I'm in Toronto. Um, have you been up here much at all? I have when I, I had an epic trip to Toronto when I was 12. Oh, do tell. That was, my uncle was living there. And so uh-huh. we drove from Connecticut. I think it took like eight and a half hours. And I was so shocked that a big city could be so clean. That's oh. <laughs> just the one thing I remembered. That's called high taxes. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, we just like I mean, my son, who's, you know, almost two years old, is is has is befriended the 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 like sidewalk cleaner and the snow plow man and the street cleaner, like the garbage man, like and I thought about it the other day. I actually have pictures I should send you. I have a picture of him with like this the sidewalk cleaner. This man's job is to every morning, every single day, go up and down our streets and you know, like with a huge vacuum thing clean the sidewalk and um and it just made me think the other day i'm like wow we have a lot of people like cleaning our neighborhood all the time but of course we have extremely high tax rates too so right um but you know what that's that's just the way i grew up so i'm totally cool with giving like more than 50 percent of my salary to (laughs) just live in a great country so yeah well i have been recording i hope that's okay with you oh we're on because we're i mean it just starts recording when i call you Oh, so, that, I'm fine with that. I just didn't know we'd start. Like, we haven't started, though, have we? We Yeah, let's just start. Oh, it's, you want to just start? Okay. You know is why? That- because this is, the, I don't do this, this just sometimes it happens like this, and I think it gives people an insight on how awesome you are. Oh, okay, cool. Well, this is, what a, what a pleasant start. <laughs> I like that. I'm really glad I didn't confess to any sort of embarrassing things I was doing at the moment. That's for later. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's after the 40-minute mark. <laughs> But I I love how when you started and you're talking about your son, actually, I'm going to ask you this in a second. I want to back up, but I do want to eventually ask you about your son and that sense of like excitement and wonder as he watches 
people clean his streets, at, like clean the streets. And because um, I heard you talk about in your TED talk and I just finished reading your book. I just finished the last chapter this morning, The Happiness Equation. So first off, congratulations on a really great book. Uh, wow. Thank you. Uh, that means a lot coming from uh, the person leading adventures and happiness. Yeah, it's the yeah. ha- I was, I'm a little stressed to have you reading it, but uh, if you like it, that's a great sign. I, I really do. And this you're really a perfect fit for the show. And I, you know, right in the beginning of your book, which I found so interesting, and I find this to be really common as well, but not many people have this awareness, is that we we spend a lot of time looking up to people, right? So you talked about for a decade, you were counseling people on how to be a leaders. You were counseling some of these top CEOs, having dinner with royal families, you know, talking to so many different already very successful companies that were looking to get to the next level. And you were seeing this theme where these people that we all look up to, they might be seen as successful, but they weren't actually happy. So can you tell me about that aha moment? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, first of all, I've been lucky that I had the opportunity to to work for a decade at Walmart, um, which has always, you know, treated me really well. It's always been a great company. I was able to be the director of leadership development there. And part of my role in in that capacity was to design and develop all the programs, tools, development, development that our CEOs and executives and early leaders would 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 need kind of coming to the company. So I got exposure to a big swath kind of of the organization. On top of that, I held another role for almost four years working for our CEO. Um, so I got to travel around with him and eventually his successor, uh, going to big conferences and as a result being kind of this fly on the wall at things like analyst meetings and shareholders meetings and so on, sitting in the background but listening to other CEOs and often setting up setting up those meetings. So I got some exposure that way. And then the additional exposure came from when the Book of Awesome and the TED Talk kind of came out five years ago, because from there, I ended up getting a number of uh, surprising but but flattering invitations, like uh, going to Abu Dhabi and and speaking to the royal family and uh, being on stage um, with the CEO of GE and Audi and uh, Viacom and all, all, all of a sudden, I'm finding myself backstage at, at these at these events and talking to them in their offstage persona as well, where they were just normal people and where they were nervous about what they were going to say and where they were stressed about a personal problem and where they were getting a phone call um, that sounded like my phone calls, right? Like mm-hmm. where I'm like, you know, either... Um, you know, uh, fighting with my partner, although I don't want to be, but I just am because we're bickering about something small and uh, and something happened with a child and you get certainly really worried and then you're texting frantically and I'm like, they look like me, but but they're not me. They're, they're CEOs or they're royal family members or they're big successful leaders. Like, why are they behaving the way I do? I'm wrestling with happiness. I'm struggling with it. I'm trying to get better at it, but so are they. You know, and that was sort of just this moment uh, where I'm thinking like, oh, um, uh, you know, you always think the geniuses or the happy people or the people that have figured it out are at the next level. You know, mm-hmm. they're just they're just one notch above where you are and you'll find them when you get there. They're just over the hill. But having this lucky opportunity kind of in my late 20s and early 30s to be exposed to so many of these dynamic leaders led me to suddenly believe like, oh, wait a minute. Not only are they not happy, but they're also in the same sort of struggling, searching mode that all of us are, that adventure (laughs) mode that you call it. Um, And, you know, that's where I said to myself, okay, I need some way uh, to sort of try to gather all the wisdom I've been able to see and hear and learn from other people and then add to it as much as I can to leave a legacy for my child which turned into a 300-page Word document <laughs> called Nine Secrets to Living a Happy Life, which is the book you just finished reading this morning. Right. That's kind of the story of, of you know, just bumping into people and realizing, like, you know what, it's, it's not um, an uncommon struggle. Right. And I think that it's, it can be very shocking because we just assume that they have it figured out. We assume that we're the ones struggling, but the people who are successful have, have somehow found that formula of being happier because – we, and you talk about this, we have been taught in our society that the harder we work, the more successful we become, and then the happier we'll be. So, 
you know, you talked in the very beginning about yeah. this is the model we live by. So we see these people who are successful and we're like, wait a second. But I thought that if I just made more money or found that relationship or, you know, succeeded in some area of my life, that happiness would come. Why is that model so flawed? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just, it, to me, it's six words, right? Like it's, it's, it's sort of the, um, gr- you know, the great work, that's two words, leading to a big success, another two words, leading to be happy. Like I think as a child, immigrant parents in Canada growing up, you know, I just study really hard, then I get good grades, then I'm happy because I get into a good school. Or my first job working in marketing at Procter & Gamble uh, for CoverGirl, I can tell you all about the lengthening, separating, and volumizing properties of mascara. (laughs) It's a separate separate podcast. And and so it's my first job I'm in marketing. I think, okay, I'll just do some great work. Then I'll have the big success of having, you know, great numbers or maybe getting a promotion and then I'll be happy. That's how you think about it, right? You always think it goes through that channel. But the model I espouse is actually taking the two words off the end, the be happy, and putting them at the beginning. If you try to cultivate your own happiness in a really conscious, earnest way, I'm not talking about like, you know, waking up at 7 a.m. and studying it or something. I just mean like, you know, just thinking about it, like investing in yourself. If you be happy first, then all the research suggests you then do great work because you're happier doing it. You're 31% more productive. You're 37% higher sales. These are numbers, you know, they come from big studies, meta-analysis studies at Stanford. Uh, a lot of folks these days are, are, are sort of propo- um, big proponents of this. And then guess what happens after you do that great work? Then you have the big successes. And so the, the six words actually are reversed. And then the question is, is sort of different. It's, well, what can we do today? What can we do? Little simple hacks or um, tests or uh, investments can we make in ourselves to actually get that big lift at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Right. And it, what's so great about your book is that you talk a lot about research studies. And so this is what's interesting about this word happiness is that it's so... It's hard to define a lot of times, but this is actually what you're doing. You're you're putting research behind it so we can have a better understanding of what really makes us happy. Now, someone might be hearing this and they go, all right, well, I, I kind of get it. That's cute. Be happy first. All right. But I would love to be happy first, but I have this thing called a brain that won't stop <laughs> thinking these negative thoughts. Right. And I'm really struggling with thinking positively. So can you tell us about why so many people have this challenge and why the brain is wired to be looking for these problems. Sure, absolutely. And I think this is a really common worry, right? It's sort of like, I always think negative thoughts. And by the way, I'm in the same boat, you know, like mm-hmm. I, you, you, you hit a red light and it's not turning green or you drop something on your foot or, you know, something is just taking longer than uh, you expect. You get frustrated. You, you start you start quickly going into a negative place or someone's not calling you when they said they were going to call you, whatever. Um, and so the thing is, you know, our species has been on this planet for over 200,000 years, um, as we have discovered, you know, our, our, our sort of ancestor history, even longer if you include Homo erectus, but I'm talking about Homo sapiens, so 200,000 years. And the truth of the matter is that for the vast majority of our existence on this planet, you know, we were struggling for survival. We had lifespans around 30 years of age. We, um, you know, we were nomadic. And it was all about finding food and shelter to survive. Our brains have evolved into a pattern of looking for problems. And we look for problems because we solve them, we solve them, and then we survive, right? Like we find shelter or we kill an animal or, or whatever, or we avoid the lion in, in the, in the kind of grassy plains. You know, those lead to our survival. So for 200,000 years, we've trained our brains to do that, to actually look for problem, solve problem, and then move on. And the thing is, Jess, you know, our, our current design of the world only reinforces that natural mentality. So a couple examples. You go to your doctor. He gives you the results of your blood test. 
you know, all the numbers that are within the right range, you don't think about. But if you're high cholesterol, then that's the number that you pay attention to and you feel bad about and you have to correct it. You know, if you're a teacher and you're handing back tests, well, the students that pass, great, you passed. The students that are struggling, the ones that have a lot of red X's on their sheets, well, there's a lot of remedial work and lunchtime extra extra help sessions. And, you know, you don't want to fail the grades. So let's get them a peer tutor. And like, like we design the world so that we identify problems and then we solve those problems. But today, our quality of living is so high. I mean, if you look at our lifespans today, our access to technology, our access to food, um, our access to mobility – you mentioned you're moving, you know, you can move. That was like, you know, that would that would have taken you a lifetime to do that move, you know, <laughs> right. a hundred years ago, not even that long ago, right? And so, and so we have all these incredible benefits in our life today, yet our brains are still programmed to see problems. And so the issue today isn't that we think that way, because that's just the way we all we all think. The issue is that we think we shouldn't think that way. <laughs> And that's why we get into the slippery slope of being unhappy because we think, oh, I, I should just be positive all the time. Actually, that's not the case. You shouldn't be positive all the time. That's very difficult, nay, impossible to do. So what I propose in secret number one of the happiness equation is actually a number of simple little things anyone can do. I call them the 20 for 20 challenge sometimes if I'm doing a speech or something. And it's like 20 minutes a day for 20 days in a row, you can do these little things. and if, if you're okay, I'll share a few of them now. And for me, I just try to do one or two of these a day. You know, well, I can't I, do all of them, but they're just little things. I definitely want to hear about them, but I want to just spend another second on on just this idea that about why we think the way that we think. And the reason I think this is so important to have this awareness of how our brain is wired, how it's why it's conditioned this way, is because when we have a negative thought and we're, we're thinking negatively, what tends to happen is we then have an extra layer of emotion, which is shame or guilt or frustration. So besides having that first reaction, that first emotion, we begin to pile on the emotions because we think, well, I shouldn't feel this way. And it's really that shouldn't that makes uh, makes us be in this state, which is so unhealthy and makes us feel so stuck and hopeless. And I love what you said in your in your book. It was later on. You mentioned something like you can't control. None of us can control our emotions we can control our reaction to our emotions. And I thought that was a really important point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of what you're saying is just about self-judgment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we get to the place where we're like, oh, I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. And now now suddenly, not only are we feeling bad, we're feeling bad about the fact that we're feeling bad. Yeah. <laughs> just double, just like anyone who suffered, uh, as I have in the past, you know, anxiety about anxiety or stress about stress. Like, not only are you worried about your test the next day, you're worried about the fact that you're worried about your test the next day. You don't think you're going to be able to sleep tonight. Like right. that's a doubling effect of the thing, of the emotion you're already feeling. And this is why it's so healthy to have conversations where we're talking about other successful people and how they have similar struggles and even ourselves, even moments in our own lives when, yes, we know, we know this stuff, but we can still slip up. And that humanness, I think, is so freeing for other people to hear. And we stop being so hard on ourselves ourselves. I think a lot of people, especially in the personal development world, people who are listening to podcasts, they want to improve their lives. You have to be careful because oftentimes self-help turns into self-punishment. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great way to put it. Self-flagellation if I'm saying that word right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I just really wanted to use that word for once in my life. <laughs> I've read it like ten times. I'm like, yeah, I got to use it. No, but um, I totally, I totally agree, right? And that's 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 actually the danger of even the phrase self help, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it it puts you already into a bucket. I like the bookstores where it's called well being. Yeah, you know, like totally. I go to a lot of bookstores near where I live. They don't have a self help section. They have something called well-being and that, that to me that reframing I sound that sounds better self-help has the uh, implicit assumption baked into it that you need help yes you know that you are trying to you you are in requirement you you require help right. well-being is just like I want to live a great life what you got right. <laughs> I think that's a better way to think about it Definitely. well I want to hear about these tips the big seven and I just want to mention before you go into these I think a lot of times when 
we're hearing, you know, different experts give, you know, I, I read these tips and they're really great and they're also very easy. And there's a problem with that is a lot of us have been trained to think that unless it's hard, it's not effective. And oh, oh yeah, yeah. And so I, I just I want to point that out because I think a lot of times we hear certain tips and we just go, oh, yeah, yeah. Like that's a cute idea. But what you're showing with different research and your experience is that it's really these little things that make a profound shift. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the best things in life are simple, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you can actually design a little system in your life or a little habit that makes it easy to integrate. And I hope, you know, for me, what I try to do is I'll share these seven really quickly now, you know, seven things you can do to kind of be happier, little hacks you can do on a given day. And then also it's just about doing, I think, on a given day, you know, one or two of them and just keeping them in mind. So I try to have them in the back of my head. So real quick, I'll go through them super fast. Um, number one is three walks. So Penn State researchers discover if you take three 30-minute uh, brisk walks a week, uh, you'll be happier. And they did this study against people taking antidepressants and against a group taking antidepressants and doing the walking. Like together, like just the walks alone enrich your life and make you happier. Three 20-minute walks, 20, 30-minute walks a week. And you, it sounds simple, right? And then you think, hey, how many times have I gone for a 20, 30-minute walk in the past week? And it depends on who you are and what you're doing in your day. But a lot of people are like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done it. I haven't gone outside and just gone to get some fresh air. That one's really simple. The second one is uh, a 20-minute replay or the act of journaling about your day at the end of your day about a positive experience. Beautiful thing, of course, is that you get a tripling effect on that experience. You get to relive it as you write it again, and you get to relive it as you read it again after you've written it. So it's like that positive thing that happened happens three times in your mind. You've got no GPS signal in your brain, so when you're writing, you think you're there again, and it's a beautiful way to relive it. As a University of Texas study, uh, called How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Words, you know, and it's a great, a great study because they found that people that journal are, are just happier, more likely to stay in relationships. Um, third one is uh, committing five random acts of kindness a week. This one's Professor Sonia Libomirsky at Stanford, uh, really well known for her happiness research, and she found that if you do five small things a week for other people, you get the greatest increase of happiness of almost any other thing you could do. And they're little things, right? Right, Just like holding the door open for someone or a stream of people. And then you think about yourself, you're like, I'm the door holder opener. Or like, I'm, <laughs> I'm this great guy who holds doors open. And you think better of yourself, uh, even though it's just a small little thing. The fourth one's called a complete unplug. And there's just been a ton of research on disconnecting from technology. It's really starting to become more popular to sort of say, uh, ban yourself from your own screens for the first hour and last hour of the day. Or what my wife Leslie and I did last weekend is, you know, from Saturday morning, even though we live in downtown Toronto, we like left our phones at home. Uh, My wife's parents watched our son for one night and we went down the street to like a hotel that we could almost see. But the idea was to get out of our own houses, leave our cell phones behind, and then we just stayed there one night. And and it was like, do you want to see a movie? Sure. What's playing? I don't know. I guess we'll have to walk and find <laughs> right. out. You know, do you want to eat at a restaurant? Sure. Like, which one looks busy? You know what I mean? It, it was a different neighborhood in, in our own town, and you can't go on Yelp, right? You can't just check yeah. it. You know, it made it kind of fun. Did you but, have any withdrawal symptoms? I mean, you do at first, but then as soon as you realize you don't have your physical phone with you, it, it, your something about it lets go. Yeah. Right. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that we usually do, especially when we have our you know, someone watching our son is is just sort of say, um, you know, here's how to reach us. Here's the phone number. And this is a trick I always used to do when I set my out of office at uh, at work too. Is I would I would set my out of office, literally not take my work cell phone with me on a on a vacation. But then I would say in my out of office, contact so and so. And then I would say to so and so, if anything's urgent, here's the phone number of the hotel or the resort or whatever, so that I knew if that phone never rang someone's still watching my back and it relieves me of the feeling that I need to check in case there's an emergency because if there was an emergency, the phone would ring and sometimes it did, right? Like there's an urgent thing we need you to get back on. Great. That's why I gave you the phone number. But because the phone doesn't ring very often, you feel okay by not having your cell phone. 
That's the fourth one. Fifth one is hitting flow. Uh, there's entire books written about this by uh, much more profound positive psychologists than me, but essentially it's when you find the exact middle ground between challenge and skill and you lose track of time. So sometimes at a talk, I, I talk about this and people say, oh, that's what I get like when I'm drumming, you know, or that's what happens to me when I'm painting or doing photography. And, you know, just finding that little Zen moment where you can take 20 minutes and do photography every day, if that's what you love, actually reinvigorates your mind and increases your happiness level. Um, the sixth one is doing uh, meditation. Uh, of course, there's so many apps like Headspace and Calm to sort of start into this. Uh, for me and Leslie, we, we use Headspace. We got a little cable splitter like on our iPhone so that when the baby's asleep, we can kind of both do a little guided meditation before bed. And it just lets our brains zoom out. and helps us relax. I'm not good at meditation. I, I know that's not the right word to use, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm still learning how to, how to sort of be more comfortable in that headspace, but um, every time I sort of uh, push myself to do one, I feel great afterwards, which tells you that, hey, the research is right. You know, Massachusetts General Hospital shows that your um, neural activity is increased in your prefrontal cortex, you know, better attention, better focus, i.e. better ability to prioritize all the millions of little things that are bogging you down uh, when you're done because you see things for what they are. And then the last one is five gratitudes a week, which um, I was actually doing just on my blog, 1000awesomethings.com, without even realizing it. So, you know, I'm writing a little awesome thing every day, five a week. And now there's a study that says that saying or writing down five gratitudes a week actually makes you quite a bit happier because, of course, you realize how thankful. Um, and lucky you are to have what you do have. Right. So those seven really quickly are three walks, a 20-minute replay of journaling, five random acts of kindness, a complete unplug, hitting flow or the middle of challenge and skill where you lose track of time, doing a meditation, uh, or saying or writing down five gratitudes. And like it's, a, it's just like a little pail full of ideas. You do one or two of those a day, that's great. It's a little medicine. Right. I love that. Little medicine. In your book, you have so many studies, many that you've mentioned already, but is there one study about happiness that's just your absolute favorite? Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, a, a lot of, there's an entire secret in, in the book. You know, the book is nine, nine secrets, right? And so the second one's called Do This and Criticism Can't Touch You. And in that, that secret, I actually share a really stressful experience that I had when uh, my blog first got big and the Book of Awesome first came out and how I became obsessed with all the external validators that became visible to myself, like the stats counters, counters and the bestseller lists and the number of books you've sold and the number of views on your TED Talk and all these numbers became obsessive to me and maybe my personality type. Um, and essentially what happened was I lost sight of my intrinsic motivators or the reason I was writing in the first place because the extrinsic motivators became more visible. And there's an incredible study that shows that actually that, that's what happens. Extrinsic motivators actually mentally block you from seeing your intrinsic motivators, yet the same studies show that when you're extrinsically motivated to do something, you do a far worse job at it. So like an artist who's not paid, for example, but told to um, paint me a painting or write me a poem, you know, an independent judge always says that's a better piece of work than the artist who was told I have $500 for something for my living room or um, I, need some, I need three poems written for 100 bucks by Friday. Well, every independent study shows that the ones that are intrinsically motivated produce better work. So what's the thing you can do to block criticism? Secret number two is, is simply do it for you. And in the book, I share some ways to try to do this and try to make sure that everything you're doing is for yourself. Right. Right. It's interesting. I find criticism and praise to be very similar in the sense of when my book started coming out and I was getting a lot of great praise, I was really surprised by my reaction because the praise made me very uncomfortable. 
Uh, I really liked it, but then I also had this fear around it. Like, well, does it mean I have to live up to this forever? Or, you know, just you you love it, but you also fear all of the attention. And I one of the ways that I started to look at criticism, and then, you know, you get criticism, you fear that as well. So in the beginning, me being a public person, it, I wasn't really that good at it because I didn't like praise and I didn't like criticism. Uh, and one of the things that I... I worked on is is what you talk about is doing the work for you but also um, when you are praised as well as criticized to realize that the praise as well as the criticism really is doesn't have that much to do with you it's a reflection of someone's own experience with your work which is mm-hmm. which is outside of of who you are and and why you're doing it and I felt like you know, and I've had someone say that to me before. If you even get obsessed with praise and numbers, then the criticism hurts even more because you are putting so much value on an outside opinion. So to take praise graciously, but don't make the praise ever be the reward. That's a beautiful way to put it, Jess. I love I love that. And the other problem, of course, with being uh, addicted or obsessed with, with praise or positive feedback is it never lasts. So you go up on a bestseller list, you go down on a bestseller list. You go up on any ranking, you go down on a ranking. You go up to the top of the podcast charts, you go down. <laughs> like there's only one way to go when you're at right. the top. And and so that makes the torturous slipping so much more painful because you became obsessed with where you ended up. And part of this, I think, comes back to confidence, something that I am always still working on. Um, but I actually explain in, in the happiness equation, this idea of a confidence box. And um, it's this idea that we all have an opinion of ourselves, but at the same time, we have an opinion of others. And so I place that on a two-by-two matrix, and I say, if you don't have a good opinion of yourself and you don't have a good opinion of others, you're cynical, right? Like that's mm-hmm. just, And we all get to that place sometimes. You know, it's, These are not like, you know, I'm always this or that. It's more just like, yeah, we've all been cynical. That's kind of a low opinion of yourself and other people. Now, if you have a low opinion of yourself, but a high opinion of others, you're insecure. And again, we all flip into that mode sometimes. Certainly I do. And, you know, so-and-so has more of this or that or whatever, but you get insecure. And then the tendency when you become insecure is sometimes to flip to a place where you're like having a great opinion of yourself and a low opinion of others. Sometimes that's mistaken for confidence, but really that's arrogance. Right. And so I argue that the the top right quadrant of the box um, where you have a high opinion of yourself and a high opinion of others, really hard to describe a box verbally, but there you go, <laughs> is, is confidence, right? Like that's actually the definition. So if you can sort of be happy and comfortable with the praise you're receiving, but also be proud and excited for others as well. So be, be saying like, I'm really happy to be part of a community where there's lots of people doing great work, lots of artists putting out great things, lots of creative peers of mine um, with great websites or great businesses that I can learn from. Like that is confidence. And that sometimes I think is the ticket to moving forward whenever you get stuck on either feeling bad about yourself or feeling too good. Right. Well, and what you're also addressing is jealousy, because when we're having those moments of feeling jealous of someone else in our field, it is uh, it's limiting our own happiness and our own ability to do things because, you know, going back to do it for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I share that, that story briefly right now. But, you know, in, in the book, I kind of go into it in detail. Like, I, I became obsessed with that stuff. And it's 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 one thing to sort of point at that and say, um, oh, I was like that. But the truth is, I still get like that, right? And so the, <laughs> the book is a bit of a guideline to myself to sort of remind myself that, as you said, um, it's just you end up on a slippery slope if you if you get back there mentally. So you've got to kind of kick yourself out of it. Yeah. I love that. So I want to talk about our own mortality. How does having an awareness of of our mortality, of how much time we have left on this planet, how does that contribute to happiness? Oh, big question. <laughs> um, you're, you're good at asking the sort of juicy ones. Well, I think that um, it contributes to our happiness in, in a number of ways. The first one, of course, is the feeling of appreciation you get when you realize how lucky you are to simply be alive. And, you know, there's um, a number that I quote in the book that says 7 
billion people are alive today, roughly, <laughs> and um, there's 115 billion people who have ever lived. So that means your odds of even being alive right now are 1 in 15. 14 out of every 15 people who have ever lived are no longer here. They'll never have a bowl of chocolate ice cream again or, or hold their child or, you know, sing happy birthday with their family or go on a long walk holding hands with a loved one or, you know, have a pet a dog while watching Jeopardy, whatever it is you love, you can't do it anymore. And, and most people are gone. And so just the fact that you're alive means you're pretty lucky. On top of all that, if anyone, you know, for the folks listening to this, you have so much more to be thankful about, right? I mean, um, half the people in the world don't have access to the internet. You know, uh, 93% of people in the world don't have any post-secondary education. Um, and you start going through this, these opportunities, you're like, I'm pretty lucky to be here right now. And, uh, I have a pretty short time to be here right now. There's a famous Steve Jobs quote from his uh, Stanford commencement speech where he says, you know, remembering I'll be dead soon <laughs> is the greatest motivator to getting things done. It, it, it makes me so lucky to be alive. It also takes away all fear because I no longer have time to be afraid of waiting because I don't have that much time, but I'm lucky to have what time I have. And so that I think contributes to our happiness because it makes us feel really appreciative of what we have today. Yeah. Oh, I think that's so important. When I was watching your TED speech, your TED talk, you uh, talked about the influence that your parents have had on your life. And I want to touch upon that because it, it resonated with me as uh, my family, we immigrated to the US from Argentina when I was just a baby. And growing up with parents from a, from a different country really had a big impact on the way that I viewed the world. How did that experience being raised uh, from your parent with you know by your parents who who immigrated to Canada? How did that impact the way that you viewed the world? Two big ways come to mind. One is my, my dad's from a small village in India. Um, he uh, came over as the first high school physics teacher in the the school board that um, kind of we grew up in east of Toronto. And my mom is from Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. My parents had a a, a wedding in England, and um, she came here as an as an accountant. Um, you know, bl blue collar jobs, uh, working working hard to to uh, give my sister and I a great childhood, and they and they did that. But two things stand out. One is my parents had a choice when they moved here to either live sort of downtown Toronto in a very uh, East Indian community. I'm, I'm East Indian background, um, you know, surrounded by the temples and, and the um, food that they were more, more accustomed to eating, um, you know, that type of thing, or, or living out in the suburbs, which in the 1960s, you know, was not diverse at, at really at all. <laughs> and, and then deciding consciously to just accept and enjoy and say yes to every opportunity that would come their way. So my parents, you know, were vegetarian until they got here, and then they started eating meat. Um, they went to a uh, barbecue, and they were like, "Hamburgers? I'm in. Give me one. I'll take <laughs> one of those." And then, and then they were like, "Oh, uh, Ken, my dad, you know, he's a teacher. First summer here in Canada, they're like, why don't you come to the national park with us and, and go on a big canoe trip? Sure, I'm in." He couldn't swim, right? He he didn't even know how to swim, but he he went on a canoe trip his first summer in the country. And then the first winter, I have pictures of them skiing. Like they just said yes to everything. So that exposure as a, as a child for me to see them seek to immerse. It's courageous. It's very courageous. And partly they were that courageous because they didn't have any living parents at all, but nor any, any parents here. So, um, you know, they were just like, we're on our own anyway. It's it's these friends that we're meeting that are gonna help us sink or swim. And and if they actually funny story about that. My dad's my dad's first name is actually um, Surrender, um, same last name as me, Pasricha, Surrender Pasricha. So he came over here, and his first day teaching as a teacher, somebody said, "Oh, Surrender," and he said, "No, no, it's Surrender." Oh, Surrender. Okay, we'll call you Surrender. And he's like, no, it's Surrender. <laughs> and then they're like, well, what's your middle name? And he's like, Kumar. And he's like, how about Ken? How about Ken? That's, that starts with a K. And then my dad went home that night and he thought, well, I didn't come all the way to Canada to surrender. 
I came here because I can do something with my life. So he changed his name that night <laughs> to Ken, which is what the guy in the hallway called him his first day as a teacher. And to this day, 40-something 40, 40 years later in Canada, he's 70 years old now, he goes by Ken. That's Everyone great. thinks his name is Ken. Every, every, my wife, you know, everyone goes, calls him Ken. But actually, his real name is Surrender. He just changed it because he didn't like the association with the idea of surrendering. He wanted to, he wanted to be able to can do it, you know? And right. so K-E-N is his first name. And so that mentality kind of helps answer the question of what I learned from them, right? Like, because it's about wonder and about appreciation and about just saying yes and trying new things and just being lucky because um, they always felt that way. I love that. And they that. made my sister and I feel that way growing up. Well, staying on this topic of wonder, we've talked about your dad and we're going to now go to your son for a moment because I did mention in the beginning how you know how you told me that he knows everybody who's outside working and <laughs> yeah. there's this like there's such a sense of wonder when you're little. What is tell us about that sense of wonder and what we can learn from the children in our lives? Sure, absolutely. Well, my son and I have uh, a tradition almost daily where he wakes up super early. I also wake up fairly early. So it's 6.30 in the morning. Say it's pitch black outside, uh, being the winter up here. And I, I strap him into the stroller. I put a hat on him, mitts, scarf, the whole deal. And we go for like what feels like a midnight walk. I mean, it's 6.30 in the morning, but it's pitch black. We look for the stars. We look for the moon. And then we have friends on our walk. And one of his friends is Fazim, the guy that drives the... Uh, the street cleaner who's usually going up and down our street at that time of the day. We stop. He stops his, his street cleaner. My son is obsessed with this machine you know, that runs up and down the, <laughs> they are the very street. Cool. Like, the, the sound of it. And he gets out. We gave him a little uh, one of my kids' books for Christmas for his daughter. And then there's this dance. That's the first guy on our, on our, on our walk. The second guy is the dancing man. Um, his name's Trini. He's from Guatemala. Uh, he mops there's two like wings places like next to each other he's got a contract where i guess in the middle of the night or early in the morning he mops and sweeps the floors and does it all with cranking latin music and dancing <laughs> like with the with the mop and everything and so we stop in the window and he comes up to the window and my son like dances in his stroller with him you know, and and we keep going. And then we go to the 24-hour grocery store where at 7 a.m. there's a shift change. And so my son knows all the cashiers um, on the night shift and the ones on the morning shift. And, you know, one of the cashiers on the night shift is taking care of a little kitten outside the store. And my son's like, where's the kitten? And he comes in and he's like, you know, sometimes we have to buy like some frozen fruit or something and we buy something. But really, it's just getting to know the people in the neighborhood. And I thought about it the other day, Just I thought, you know, I'm 36 years old. If it wasn't for my son, I definitely would not be doing that. I would not be getting up early, walking out the door. Uh, this is to help my wife, you know, sleep in a little bit. Uh, meeting and talking to all of these strangers, you know, like how often do you talk to the guy who's cleaning the streets or, or the cashier and even know all their names? Like, but it's because of him because he wants to say hi to them and he's curious about them and he's like, what's happening with this little conveyor belt in the grocery store and, you know, why is that man dancing and what's he dancing to and and it helps me connect with those people and also just appreciate the fact that yeah I'm lucky to be having this opportunity so um last week I actually took a camera on my cell phone but I took a picture of him with all of these people and so I'm in the process right now of making a little book that I can read to him before bed, which is like our morning walk, like the, the, the story of it, you know, like, yeah, we, we bumped into Trini and we saw Rachel at the grocery store. And to answer your question, it's like, what can we learn? Well, what can't we learn? You know, it's like, that's life. Right. Going outside, having fresh air, meeting people you don't know, but feeling connected to them because you're part of the same community. Um, Chatting with them, adding some, adding, you know, letting them make you happy and making them happy at the same time through your, you know, points of connection and your similarities or the weather or whatever it is you want to talk about. And that fills you up, right? It, yeah. it does. And um, I can't say enough about, about learning from my son. A great example, by the way, I just told the other one I'll give you is, is um, he loves rain to a point where he likes to go outside when it's raining and stare up at the rain hitting his face, right? Like he just smiles and he laughs and he just can't believe this rain. And it struck me the other day that I've shielded myself from rain for probably 
three decades of my life. You know, like I've had umbrellas or hats, or if it's pouring rain, you don't go outside, you stay under the awning. And I'm like, actually, it's pretty special, right? Like, like this gigantic cloud flying overhead is just releasing fresh water over your face. Like, it, it, but it's something that I've protected myself from for so many years. So a child can really open our eyes to the sort of assumptions we've made and just sort of re-expose us to some of the simple beauties of life. Absolutely. It makes me think, you know, it's so easy to turn on the news and think that we live in this harsh, cold world. And it's also just as easy to walk out the door and connect with the people around us and realize we live in this really gentle and kind world. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, when, when, you know, you aren't using your uh, job or your job title or your appearance or your place of work or your place of living as, as devices to sort of, you know, pigeonhole people because you're moving so quickly and you're trying to just figure out who's who, then suddenly we connect even deeper, I, I find, you know, like it's the connections um, move past the place of what we are and they become who we are really quickly. Right. Well, Neil, I have uh, just a few questions that I like to ask all my guests. I change them around. Um, but the question I'd love to ask you is, what is something in your life that when it happened, it seemed horrible, but when you look back, it was a really big blessing? Ah, that's a great one. Well, you know what? Early in my life, I had a really traumatic experience swimming. Um, I had ear infections my entire childhood. I had tubes in my ears. Um, and then I fell into the deep end of a pool at one of my dad's sort of school pool parties. And I, ha I can still see to this day, you know, what it feels like to try to be breathing underwater in a, in a pool. And so I ended up ruling swimming out of my life. This is the sort of, you know, the, the sort of thing I had at a young age. And I got good at avoiding swimming pools. I got good at um, forgetting my trunks, you know, at, at anyone's pool party. And it all changed when I met Leslie a few years ago. And on one of our first dates, she said to me, um, so do you like swimming? And I was like horrified because I'm on my like second or third date with this beautiful woman who I'm sorry, already starting to feel like I'm falling in love with her. And I'm like, play it cool, past Rachel. I'm like, no, no, not, not really a big fan, you know. And she's like, oh, that's too bad because my family has a cottage way up north, a few hours north of here, but it's on an island. It's been in our family for generations. And every morning, my 80-year-old grandparents and my five-year-old cousins, like 20 of us, we jump into the lake and we swim around the island. I guess you can't come. <laughs> and it was like, what? So that night I got home and without thinking about whether I could do it or whether I wanted to do it, I just signed up for adult learn to swim classes like at the local um recreation pool like in downtown toronto you know moldy change rooms like the big you know kind of all swaths of life get together on wednesday night hey i get out there at the pool the first week and and i realized i wasn't the only one that sucked for once like no one could swim people are from landlocked countries they had more traumatic experiences than I do, I had. So trust formed quickly. So I got, you know, the life jacket on, you know, the goggles. I, I got the kick, you know, the, I'm holding on to the styrofoam. I get into the shallow end. And after half an hour, I was doing it. And then I realized I could do it. And then I realized I wanted to do it. And the big thing I learned from that, what appeared to be a very negative experience as a child, is I actually learned that motive. Motivation does not cause action, but instead, action causes motivation. When I force myself to just do it, I then taught myself that I could do it. The capability came after, and then I wanted to do it. The motivation came after too. And so the takeaway for me on this is I try to remember this as much as I can is that you know if I want to run a marathon, the, the secret isn't to have the perfect playlist and the perfect running partner and the $200 running shoes. It's just to run out my front door and my dress shoes to the corner. And then the next day think, I could do it yesterday. I got to go a little further today. Or if I want to write a book. Um, and this has been a trick that I use to help me write The Happiness Equation, by the way. Instead of thinking, okay, I need the perfect coffee shop. I have to have the right software. I need to like spec it all out. I just like literally start writing. And 
even writing one terrible paragraph the next day convinces me that I was able to do it yesterday. So let's see if I can write two paragraphs today. And the action causes the motivation. And I try to use that lesson to address every fear that I encounter in my life. How can I sample a really, really small, easy to win kind of version of this so that I'm more inspired to do it in a bigger way the next day? Oh, that is a great piece of advice. Instead of sitting there waiting for that inspiration to hit you, it begins with the action. I love that. So I have um, my final question for you is if you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, think this, I think this is such an insight on people's personality. It's my favorite question. Oh, okay. Well, I, okay. The I wouldn't pressure. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the pressure is, is big. Well, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of which animal I'd be. Well, you know what? I, I think I'll, I'll make it really simple. I would be a blue jay for a few reasons. Okay. One, I've always wanted to fly, so I got to pick some form of bird or something that can fly. I'd like to be up high. I'd like to see the world from a new perspective. I'd like to go places that I can't currently go, like the tops of trees or the tops of lampposts or wherever. I want to see the world from a place where roads don't matter, you know? And that's a really big thing to me. Second of all, I think I think a blue jay is just... Um, I don't know enough about the birds themselves, but I'm from Toronto. I'm a baseball fan, so I've grown <laughs> up with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, you know, having them on my wall, being able to draw them, making the Blue Jays logo out of stained glass in in my elementary school. You know, like so, the Blue Jays is just what I feel is a beautiful bird that is, you know, for me, it's related to something I already love, which is the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team. Hopefully, we win the World Series this year, and and so that's where I get the concept of seeing things from a new perspective, from the perspective of flying, but also just something I already think is a cool animal. Yeah, I like the color blue. If you're going to yeah, be a bird, I mean, many, pick a good-looking bird. Blue, how many blue birds are there? Like that kind of striking bright blue. Not many. No, not many. That's no. great. Well, Neil, this has been so much fun. If people want to learn more about you, they want to pick up your book, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the best place to find me is at globalhappiness.org. That's the Institute for Global Happiness, which I'm the director of. And I'm really enjoying uh, working on that that um, uh, project uh, with lots of free resources on a lot of the happiness things we talked about. And then on Twitter, I'm twitter.com slash 1000awesome because as you keep growing and changing, Changing your platforms, you can't change your Twitter handle, so I'm forever linked to my <laughs> 1000awesomethings.com blog, which is no problem. And then, as for the Happiness Equation, the book, um, anywhere books are sold, so your local independent bookstore, uh, online at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, wherever you happen to buy books, should be there. Awesome, and I highly recommend it. Neil, this has been, again, a ton of fun. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jess. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.